Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 9th of January 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border, and uh, Mark Anderson reporting from the United States. Uh, we'll get straight on with uh, beds in the NHS and, uh, well, 250 million pounds uh, for beds. Uh, where are they going to go? Well, they're going into care homes, perhaps, but other settings. And uh, so the question, Brian, is what are other settings? Uh, well, other settings, according to the mainstream press, seem to be hotels. So hotels now not only being used for uh, immigrants uh, coming into the country, but also for for people coming out of hospital. Uh, so this is Plymouth Live from the end of last week. Derford Hospital patients put up in Plymouth's Leonardo Hotel in bid to ease bed blocking. Uh, in fact, this isn't the first time this has happened. So that's uh, uh, from uh, the 6th of January, 2023. Uh, here's uh, December, 2021. Plymouth Hotel transferred into care facility in bid to relieve NHS. Uh, and uh, in 2020, prominent hotels set to house Derford patients. Uh, this seems to be have been the situation pretty much since COVID uh, that any hospital overflow would end up in hotels. Of course, there's no social care system left in the country, Brian. Uh, but let's just remember, remind ourselves the graph that I showed last week uh, from Statista, uh, basically making the point that, uh, you know, the decimation is more than decimation of beds in the NHS over the last 20 years. Uh, a global policy, not, not a party political policy, but something that uh, both of the major party politi uh, political parties have implemented uh, in their time in government. Um, so here's what uh, Steve Barclay had to say about this or um, is going to be saying about this because he's going to be making a, re a report to Parliament today. Uh, in, addition, we're in addition, we're trialing six national discharge frontrunners, uh, innov innovative quick solutions which could reduce discharge delays, moving patients from hospital to home more quickly. Now we'll come on to the hospital to home bit first, but just uh, we just leave that up on screen for a second. I just wanted to mention some of these uh, uh, six national discharge front runners. Um, for example, Sussex Health and Care Integrated Care System are trialing a new data tool to help services manage performance, give operational oversight and manage demand. So that's going to help. Uh, Humber and North Yorkshire uh, Integrated Care System are going to be supporting patients to move across health and social care organisations through innovative use of data and real-time intelligence. And One Croydon Alliance are going to be trialling a fully integrated team uh, between acute and com community integrated IT system, integrated financial systems and integrated leadership uh, to better coordinate between hospitals and community care settings like rehabilita rehabilitation systems. Um, so that's all good stuff. It's all clinical. It's all going to make sure that people are well looked after when they uh, leave hospital. But just moving back to the moving hospitals from uh, moving patients from hospital to home more quickly. Let's just remind ourselves about the latest all cause mortality statistics, uh, which takes us up to the 23rd of December. And you can see that massive spike in the 23rd of December. Uh, we've got to remember that, what is it? 37% uh, of those, the largest proportion of those excess deaths are in the home. Um, and so perhaps that tells us why they're wanting to move people out of hospital back into home as quickly as possible, Brian. Um, it's, <laughs> I don't know what to say, Mike, actually, as we watch this un unfold, is there a war on in this country? Well, there isn't technically at the moment. And we're just seeing the NHS ripped to pieces 
but at the moment there's no public backlash. I wonder how long it's going to take before the public realise that this destruction of the NHS is orchestrated from the inside. And uh, what's happening in the wider care system? Well, there's a, a court case reported today where a, an elderly lady was put on end of care pathway. Her family were not told at the time, so she, she died. She was effectively, well, she was put on end of care uh, and died, family not told. So now the authorities, which say they're there to help, have the powers to decide whether you're going to live or die. And remember that the NHS has now declared that it's going to be getting into uh, nursing homes and care homes in order to uh, diagnose people with dementia. And if you've got dementia, presumably you can be put on an end of care pathway. So uh, this is a massive attack on the public of, of the UK, but it appears that many people still haven't woken up. Uh, well, let's look at another massive attack uh, in many ways. This is Associated Press, and they, they have uh, published an article, uh, Not Real News, a look at what didn't happen last week. So let's see what their top story here is. Claim two researchers find that more than 1,500 athletes have suffered cardiac arrest since COVID-19 vaccinations began, compared to a previous average of 29 athletes per year, suggesting the vaccines are causing a dramatic rise in such cardiac issues. So first of all, let's ask why is Associated Press having a look at this claim? Uh, well, it turns out that Tucker Carlson um, carried, I believe it was last Tuesday, uh, a little segment on this issue. Let's just have a brief look at uh, one of the points that he was making. Cardiologist Peter McCullough and researcher Pangus Polycritus looked into this trend in Europe, European sports leagues. They found that prior to COVID and the COVID-19 vaccines, there were roughly 29 cardiac arrests in those European sports leagues per year. Since the vax campaign began, there have been more than 1,500 total cardiac arrests in those leagues and two-thirds of those were fatal. Does that prove something? We don't know, but you should know that. So Tucker Carlson covering that last week, uh, and uh, so this is what Associated Press had to say about it. Carlson was in fact referencing a letter, not a rigorous study, that uh, cardiologist Peter McCulloch and researcher uh, uh, Panagos uh, Polycritus published in a Scandinavian journal in late 2022, and that letter simply cites the blog, blog goodsciencing.com. The blog's list is a compilation of news reports about recent deaths and medical emergencies and includes cases not reported to be spurred by cardiac arrest. Some deaths, for example, were reportedly from cancer. Uh, the list also includes incidents from around the world and among people of all ages, including some in their 70s and 80s, not just athletes in European sports leagues, as Carlson claimed. Uh, but Associated Press goes on to say this, and this is the bit that I find particularly egregious. Uh, the COVID-19 vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna do carry a rare risk of myocarditis and inflammation of the heart, uh, though experts and officials say uh, the benefits of vaccination outweigh the risks. Uh, cardiologists have told Associated Press, unnamed cardiologists, you notice, cardiologists have told Associated Press that they have not observed a dramatic increase in sudden cardiac arrest, as alleged in social media. McCulloch and Fox News did not return requests for comment. Uh, and David, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this because, uh, as I say, I find that final paragraph the most egregious part of this uh, because. Um, the mainstream press continues to just accept what they're told and regurgitate what they're told. 
they're not actually looking at what McCulloch was saying, uh, and they're not actually uh, deciding or discovering whether what he was saying is, is true or not. They simply try to, to rubbish the source uh, without providing any counter evidence. Yes, and the key word there is say, and talk is cheap. We have been asking now for what, a year and a half more for the risk assessment, the quantif quantified, quant quantitative risk assessment that shows that the risk of the vaccine is hugely outweighed by the benefit of the vaccine. Right? And remember, we're talking about sportsmen, we're talking about extremely fit people with no comorbidities who are at almost zero risk from COVID. So that's quite a significant ask. But since, since it is admitted by Pfizer et al um, that, that, that some of the responses to the injections have a, quote, fatal outcome, they admit that they, they are killing some people, surely the bar must be extremely high as to how much backup, scientific data, rigorous analysis you have in order to justify continuing to use these injections if you know that you're going to kill some of your patients and you know that the patients were at very, very, very low, if not minimal, if not infinitesimal risk to start with. But we don't get any answers. And the press won't ask, the mainstream media won't ask the question. Uh, I've seen this play out on Twitter as well. A Twitter account made a similar statement, was rubbished by an official source, fact-checked and all the rest of it. And they, they simply posted their list of sportsmen and women who have suffered heart attacks, sudden death, often on the sports field, you know, in the last two years. And it's page after page after page after page. It certainly looks abnormal to me, just having looked at life for 50 odd years, and it certainly warrants a proper study. It doesn't warrant a knee-jerk reaction from the mainstream media to say there's nothing, it's all conspiracy theory, there's nothing to look at here, move along. That won't do. It's just not good enough. Indeed. Uh, so Mark, uh, let's come back to the United States, the same issue here, and we've got uh, USA Today, uh, and the headline is, don't let anti-vaxxers lie to you about uh, Demar Hamlin like they did with NCAA referee. Yes, this is uh, part of the same kind of propaganda. This was sort of a quickie item I sent in supplementary to my other stuff. And this is one of two absurd USA Today articles that are museum specimen quality of the kind of propaganda they're putting out, that anti-vaxxers are becoming even more dangerous, they say, when they claim that athletes and sports reporters, journalists, are dying sometimes on live TV or coming close to death, whatever the case might be. Uh, Damar, I understand, is recovering. He's a Buffalo Bills uh, pro football player. But yeah, this this is just uh, uh, using what could be or what many consider obvious or at least quasi-obvious problems with the vaccines in real time. And they're using that to actually attack people that are skeptical of the Pfizer and Moderna jabs. So it's just audacious uh, on the part of the media to use this to attack people that are asking questions the way we are and Peter McCullough is. Uh, it, it's just as if we more as if we need more evidence that the mass media cartel thinks with one mind, and that mind is warped. 
So that that's really the best way to state it. Uh, Mark, thank you for that. But the, the I've got to say the opening of this article I just found extraordinary. Um, should we just read part of it for the audience and they can get a feel for this journalist as he lays into anybody who's got a different opinion? Um, so it starts yeah. off. Sh shall I read it for you or can you see it okay? No, I can see it fine. Yeah, you picked you pick the one that was the most egregious of the two, I believe. Yeah, just get a load of this. This wasn't something you were going to read because it wasn't something I was going to write. Stupid me. I decided it was inappropriate. I can't stand journalists that write in the first person, but I'll keep going. Stupid me. I decided it was unnecessary. Stupid me. I forgot just how many evil people there are in this world and how many more gullible people with their own character flaws are out there following them into the depths of hell. But then Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin collapsed on Monday Night Football, his heart stopping right there in the field. And my response is, yeah, let's find out why. But I'll go on with this little bit more of drivel here. The game was suspended, then postponed, giving us time to react on social media, which allowed evil people. These folks weren't uninformed. This was evil to blame this tragedy on the COVID vaccines that may have saved their own lives. I mean, dribble with a capital D, that, that, that wins the award for dribble. Yeah, I think David has a comment here. Uh, on the subject of dribble, Professor Sarah Wilde, University of Edinburgh, Professor of Epidemiology, the expert, the very person we should be going to, responded to a Scottish government consultation what accounts for the deaths in Scotland, the excess deaths in Scotland, from non-COVID-19 conditions? Her answer, many factors. There you go. Top analysis there. Yeah, brilliant. It's difficult. It is difficult to know what to say on this, but there's more to come, Mark, because uh, you picked out a little video clip here about the dreaded XBB.1.5. That'll be the Kraken. tank but it's uh, a pathogen I believe okay we just missed the start of your your uh, your segment there just come in again on that mark please oh um, I was just commenting XBB point one point five sounds like the name of a military vehicle or tank or something I was just commenting <laughs> yeah okay. okay we understand that okay let's play the little clip and then we can have a a bit of discussion on it. E.1.5 is spreading across the country rapidly, and it appears to be five times more contagious than BA.5, which was the latest big variant that, that affected the country. This new variant is more contagious than previous ones. That's always the case. Every new variant that spreads has to be more contagious or it wouldn't spread. And around the holidays, people have been traveling a lot. We're interacting a lot more. So human behavior is playing a role as well. They think that this variant may be better at attaching to the receptors in our body that have been vulnerable to COVID all along, uh, the ACE2 receptor. So it's a combination of factors uh, that, that's making this one particularly infectious right now. The vaccines, again, work very well at preventing severe disease and death, but you're going to catch COVID even if you've been vaccinated or you're likely to catch COVID uh, if you're exposed. So they will not prevent all disease, just as the flu vaccine hopefully will save you from severe disease, but is not going to necessarily prevent you from getting sick. Every virus is different. We're learning as we go here. 
Um, and I think the fact that there are still so many infections around the world is what's causing this continuation of variants. It's especially believed to be people who are immune compromised, who can't fight off the virus, who it percolates within them for, for some period of time. And that's how the variants seem to be developing. So the fewer people infected, the fewer immune compromised people infected, the better off we'll be over the long term. But that hasn't happened yet, unfortunately. Well, my, my comment is what a happy, silly lady. And I also want to remark on the fact that for our audience, to, did you pick up the use of the uh, Ukrainian yellow and blue in delivering this b video clip? I thought that was particularly subtle. But um, this, is, uh, this is it, Mark, uh, more of the same, really. So trust us, get the needle in your arm and you'll be safe from the next lot. Yeah, as we go into this next segment on an update on the World Pandemic Treaty, you'll notice the timing of the XBB.1.5. Again, it sounds like a fighter jet or a tank or something, but no, it's another feared and fearsome pathogen. And just as we've predicted, and we're you know we're you know showing that we're right on the money with our reporting, they're they're in a very timely fashion. They're they're uh, citing this specter of these different variants, and I don't recall. Let's. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. I don't recall about a year ago, let's say, did, did the variants have these names with the numbers in them, like XBB.1.5? Didn't they, they just they, say well, Omicron variant? They didn't yeah, give them these numbers and letters, did they? No, they, they, did, have, they did have the, uh, the official uh, categorization, and then they were given the sort of public uh, scary word to, uh, to make people... Uh, I, don't, I don't think they, the public... I wouldn't have remembered the uh, the name in this format of a as you as you say an American fighter plane. They decided to give them shorter, simpler names so that they those could be reinforced and rammed into people's heads. I think it. So what is it? Maybe crack, it kraken on this, this one. This one's the kraken. Yes. This is kraken. Yeah, it makes it sound more official. But they're rolling this out. They're saying that the uh, RSV, I believe it's called, is is pulling back. The regular flu, they say, though, is is really bad. The RSV, I believe that's the name for the one uh, variant or type of flu that's supposed to be adversely affecting very young children and infants. They're saying, in, at least in the U.S., that that's going back. The regular flu is getting worse. But now they're citing this. And they're basically saying, as before I get into the pandemic treaty update, which is very brief, they're basically saying, as we heard, there's no place to hide now. Uh, if, if you haven't been previously infected, and whether you've been vaccinated or not, you're going to catch this latest variant. They're basically saying it's a certainty. And therefore, masking is going to become more prevalent and more needed. And therefore, they're going to urge you even more to get some kind of vaccine or some kind of booster if you've already had the main so-called vaccine. And so they're trying to paint the specter that somewhere, somehow, anybody and everybody is going to catch something at some point. That, that's clearly what the blanket message is. Now, as we get into that and keeping all that in mind, uh, this pandemic treaty negotiation schedule is up on my, uh, my news queue here. And this is basically just saying that the intergovernmental negotiating body, one of many um, committees and all that within the WHO universe, within their solar system, is having um, ongoing meetings and uh, in February and March of 2023, there's a set of meetings. And then in April of 2023, there's a, a fifth meeting 
of the INB. And then in uh, May, the 76th World Health Assembly is taking place in Geneva. And a viewer of UK Column sent me this, among other things, because that viewer is concerned that even though the article I have posted on the UK Column website talks about a 2024 goal uh, to, to roll out a world pandemic treaty, that viewer is concerned they're going to try and pull a fast one and engineer most or all of that treaty by this year. I'm not sure they can pull it off, but you can't be too careful, of course. And so that's what this is really about. We're moving on to this Article 3 principles thing. Um, the uh, viewer shared this with me as well. It shows the implementation of these regulations shall be based on the principles of equity, inclusivity, coherence, and in accordance with their common but differentiated responsibilities of the state parties taken into consideration their social and economic development. And you'll notice what was crossed out is the words, with full respect for the dignity, human rights, and fundamental freedoms of persons, that is crossed out in the Article Three principles that the INB and other committees is putting together. So it's interesting that that would be omitted, at least um, in a preliminary sense. And the, um, the UK, UK column viewer cited this James Roguski, who's a blogger uh, for StopTheAmendments.com, and he too is keeping an eye on this situation. And what we're seeing here, this is from the actual World Health Organization article by article compilation of proposed amendments um, for the International Health Regulations, IHR, which is kind of the regulatory infrastructure that would um, undergird a world pandemic treaty. That's what the IHR is. And they've been around since at least 2005. And you'll notice that the middle item there, Article Three Principles, this is the um, smoking gun proof that with full respect for the dignity, human rights, and developmental freedoms of persons, or fundamental freedoms of persons, rather, that that's been crossed out. Now, to be fair, in Article Two, right above that, it mentions at the end, livelihood, human rights, and equitable access to health products and healthcare technologies and know-how is supposedly still important. But yeah, but, but Mark, sorry, just just interrupt you one second there. That's really important because they're not talking about health. They're talking about health products and they're talking about healthcare technologies. So so it's it, that's all about big pharma. That's not about actually uh, protecting anybody's human rights or the right to health. Yeah, that, that's that's an astute observation. I agree. It, and it's interesting. I was saying that when you go from Article two to Article three, it has that sort of Orwellian shift. Yeah, we can mention human rights in Article 2, but in Article 3, we'll just omit them with the stroke of a pen. So this just gives you a little bit of a whiff of what's coming as they do the nuts and bolts of what would become a world pandemic treaty. And I need not repeat just what a problem such a treaty would present in that it would centralize so much authority in the WHO in determining what constitutes a pandemic and then determining uh, much more in a much more centralized fashion what nation states must do to respond to this um, spreading pandemic. And then it would reduce the autonomy of individual states within the U.S. and any subunits within other countries, as well as national, uh, national governments. It would reduce their autonomy on um, masking, uh, how many, you know, what kind of vax mandates you have. So, um, um, medical choice and fundamental freedoms would be put on a squeeze, would be put under a squeeze like never before. So 
Uh, that's pr pretty much it. The the viewer from UK the UK column viewer rather, excuse me, is just um, making sure that we keep an eye on this and that they don't try and implement that treaty faster than otherwise stated. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that. I think it's over to uh, David now, which is possibly where the whole thing goes. Well, we're, we're now going to talk about the Melbourne experiment, um, which uh, was on the people of Melbourne. Uh, we've got here uh, uh, some information from Monash University in Australia, um, and they're talking about the Cities for People. The Melbourne experiment is a landmark interdisciplinary research collaboration studying the effects of COVID-19 on the functions of a city. Uh, they actually mean studying the effects of the COVID-19 policies on the functions of the city. And an international model for post-COVID-19 urban recovery and renewal. So this is going to go international. Uh, mes message here from their uh, senior vice president, um, sorry, uh, Mark Palange. Um, the global shutdown to control COVID-19, so he, he knows what it's about, it's about the shutdown, is a historic disruption to urban life. We can observe activities that are fundamental to the idea of, of a city being brought to a stop. I wonder why anyone would want to, but okay. The positive and negative impacts on different groups and how and whether they return as restrictions are gradually lifted. So they are now viewing the entire COVID-19 lockdown as a giant experiment to see how we all responded. What happens when you shut down a city? Uh, and who's at the back of this? It is, of course, the United Nations. So we see here a United Nations uh, article. Um, COVID-19, sustainable development, it's all about sustainable development, and the Melbourne experiment. Now they quote uh, Juan Romo of uh, uh, Carlos III's University in Madrid, um, who said, uh, we have the opportunity to learn from this pandemic, and universities are uniquely situated and resourced to lead transformative conversations, not, not repenting of what they've done to the population, note, they're going to lead conversations that are going to transform the population. There is only one direction of travel being considered. So we come now to the report itself. Uh, we have here a slide that's got the, the cover of the report on it, the Melbourne Experiment Report, um, and they, they've identified 17 lessons, because 16 is not enough. Um, and the main themes, physical and mental health and well-being, which you can't define, uh, human behaviour, it's always about human behaviour, economic impact of course, future city, planning and urban renewal, this is coming to the fore, this is your 10 minute, 15 minute, 20 minute city uh, ideas that are, that are uh, propagating all through uh, Western society now. So planning is going to be key. Um, social impacts, environmental impacts and digital technology. So they, they learn three broad lessons and here they are. Number one, the need to expand funding, well, we want more money, yes, uh, and commit adequate resources for mental health care and gender-specific planning. Now, I'm not absolutely sure what their angle is on gender-specific planning, but they were noting uh, there was a lot more domestic violence when everyone was uh, contained in a giant prison cell. Um, they are here, I think, admitting that what we've heard from our audience, that this has been an attack on people's minds. This has been an attack on people's sanity. And they are kind of admitting, yes, we need to do something about that next time. Then they then have the need to encourage and expand, expand positive behaviours established during the pandemic. So the pandemic was good. 
you know, we need to build on this. This includes employment flexibility, reduction in the use of cars. Cars represent freedom. We don't like cars, they're bad. Utilisation of technology to reduce social inequalities and increase access to social supports. Not actually sure what that means um, in practice. And then the need for reflexive and innovative planning and policy design that incorporates the voices of experts and communities and relies on evidence. Now, this is an interesting one. So we've got innovative planning and policy design. So this is how we're going to shape the cities of the future. Right? What comes first is the voices of the experts. The communities are allowed a voice, but it must rely on evidence. It doesn't rely on democracy. It doesn't rely on liberty or individual choice. It relies on evidence. Who is providing the evidence? Well, the state and the experts. So what we're talking about here is central planning against the will of the people, exactly what was seen in Oxford. Just to dive in a little bit deeper, it's a big report. Uh, I've picked out a couple of themes here. Um, theme one on physical and, and mental health and well-being. Um, so they're, they're wanting more funding for wastewater-based epidemiology. That's interesting. Um, and again, a concentration on mental health. And they're, again, they're, they're, they're mentioning women's safety and violence during the lockdown. Theme two, human behaviour. Create conditions for a city-wide shift back to public transport use. Now, create conditions means coerce. Let's be quite clear about that. Uh, and alternative modes of transport. And to consider the actual behaviours post-COVID-19 urban recovery and renewal strategies are intended to affect. Let this guide what policies are put in place. So this is the experiment, right? They are watching what is actually, how people's behaviour is actually changing, learning from it, and then putting policies in place to control, change, and manipulate that behaviour. So this is what we've been talking about for many years, but we're now seeing it being studied on a city-wide scale and applied globally. And uh, David, I think we need to add to that. Of course, it's the British government's behavioural insights team that's been instrumental in a lot of this because they've gone from applying this uh, fear policy on, uh, on the UK public to uh, moving overseas. Australia was one of the early places that they went alongside the States. And then it's gone global from there. So. Uh, we know that a lot of the uh, psychological base for what's happening appears to have started out, at least in the UK, uh, with support from the US. Yeah, yes, indeed, that's the case. Um, it's it, The Behavioural Insights team, they were the innovators, they were first, and they've been selling this technology and trumpeting how wonderful it is all around the world, especially to friendly countries like Australia and America. Okay, thank you very much for that. Well, of course, um, if uh, the people you're describing, David, are selling the message of physical and mental health and well-being, we're not going to see any physical health or mental uh, well-being in Ukraine. And of course, over the weekend, uh, we waited to see what was going to happen with the Christmas ceasefire, uh, which the BBC, of course, cynically picked up on in this headline, the Christmas ceasefire that wasn't. Uh, but as we get into this article, um, it takes us in some very interesting directions. So uh, Alexander says that he's seen no real impact of the ceasefire on the ground. So the BBC very quickly, with a key image, 
uh, are getting the UK public to think that uh, this was a ceasefire that didn't happen because of the, the Russians. So the ceasefire was announced, um, which Putin said his troops would uh, observe across the front line. Uh, running from Friday at midday until midnight on Saturday. And this was uh, so the Orthodox Christians could celebrate Christmas. Uh, the BBC then said this, Ukraine almost immediately rejected it. Uh, but it, it certainly doesn't seem like a day worth marking for those left in Bakhmut. So, um, well, it was rejected by Ukraine. Why would Ukraine reject that? Mike, you're going to be looking into this a little bit more in a few minutes. but. We're going to say that Ukraine rejected the ceasefire because the US, UK, NATO and the EU did not want their proxy war against Russia to stop. And the BBC, of course, in putting this line across, is acting as the propaganda machine for the US and NATO in order to deceive the Western and Ukrainian public. So the reality over the weekend and the ceasefire was the war went on in truly appalling conditions. And I've just put together some excellent video clips so that you can see conditions on the ground have only just frozen. So in essence, most of the trouble was with mud, which simply bogs vehicles down. And notice that these are light wheeled um, fighting vehicles which are bogged down, American and uh, British, and uh, Hummer here stuck in the mud. This is the reality of the conditions up until very recently when the temperatures dropped and we're now starting to see the ground freezing. Uh, but the uh, reality of this is that um, the conditions are appalling. This is after an overnight freeze and what you've actually got is a tank frozen into the ground. So when the uh, pressure comes on the tow line in just a, a few seconds, you'll see that one tank is unable to pull the other tank out because it's simply frozen into the ground. So this is the reality of life on the front. Um, but what does, not, what does the BBC not want to talk about? Well, let's have a look at this headline, Ukraine war defying Russian onslaught in city at the end of the world. Well, what city are they talking about? They're talking about Bakhmut. And uh, this is pure propaganda because the BBC does not want to report the reality of the slaughter of Ukrainians on the battlefield as the Russians continue a grinding advance. Uh, a map included in the reporting by the BBC is the normal simplistic map where they're, they're basically trying to say that Ukraine has regained vast amounts of territory, that the front line is stagnant because the, uh, the Russians can't move forward, when the reality on the ground is very different. The reality is the Russians are slaughtering the Ukrainian troops. Well, if we go searching for this uh, town, Solidar, uh, what comes up? Nothing to do with reality. And this is a name that the BBC doesn't want to mention. Let's have a look at a map and explain why. Um, so here's a map of the uh, Donetsk Oblast and Bakhmud is center screen towards the bottom of the shot. Let's highlight it. And this is where horrific fighting has been going on over weeks because this is a strategic location which the Russians are going to take. Uh, we're being told in the West mainly that this is an unimportant 
city, even though Ukraine is rushing in vast amounts of forces to defend it. So the Russians have been pressurizing this city, but in a very slow way. They haven't been throwing thousands of troops into machine gun fire. They've been standing back and shelling and bombarding this city, causing vast casualties. The Ukrainians have apparently put in at least 60,000 additional troops because the troops already in Bakhmut have been facing up to 70% casualties. None of this reported by the BBC. But what the Russians have been doing is a southern flanking attack. And they've also been doing a northern flanking attack aiming at Solidar, which you can see there just to the left of the uh, first of the two arrows. And uh, what is now taking uh, well, the intention for the Russians is that they will move up towards Siversk. And essentially, Bakhmut is now being encircled. Reports prior to us coming on the news also suggest this is now happening very quickly. And of course, what this means is that the Russians are going to be able to move uh, further to the west, where the Ukrainians will have a second but weak, much weaker defence line. So the key part of the battle over the last week in particular has not been Bakhmut itself, but what's been happening around Bakhmut, which the BBC doesn't report. So as of today, troops, uh, Russian troops into the centre uh, and to the just into the north of Solidar and uh, vicious fighting happening there. But what has occurred in the last uh, uh, 24 hours is that we're now into winter conditions and the ground freezing. Well, what's the uh, West and the US up to? Uh, well, this was the Guardian from back in uh, November. Ukraine needs tanks. The West should supply them. They could finish off Putin and Russia. Uh, well, of course, uh, Zelensky isn't going to get his tools to do the job because he's not going to be given tanks. The SOP is this, which I know we've uh, mentioned a little bit already, but let's remind people of what's happening. The French have now said that they're going to supply what they call armoured combat vehicles to Ukraine. This is not tanks. These are relatively light vehicles and these are extremely vulnerable on the battlefield because the Ukrainians have no air cover and they have a dwindling supply of tanks themselves. Meanwhile, the US and Germany agreeing to send infantry fighting vehicles. These are light vehicles again. Uh, so um, Bradley infantry fighting vehicles from the US and the Marder fighting vehicles from Germany. And uh, this is a report, um, uh, Mark, that you actually had from the States of Biden will send Bradley fighting vehicles to Ukraine. But you've seen or you've been sent some other footage, which we couldn't, unfortunately couldn't show, but uh, footage of um, very large trains carrying Bradleys, presumably for shipment out to Ukraine. Yes, uh, one of the ironies of covering the Texas border crisis as part of the larger southern border crisis that I've been following a long time now and will continue to do so is that a lot of people that are very critical of both Governor Abbott of Texas and of course the Biden bunch in the White House, they're also critical of our policy largely toward Ukraine because their argument is obvious. Why do we spend so much effort, even including Abbott, not just Biden, um, to 
uh, have overseas relations and secure the borders of other countries and we can't secure our own. Well, as I note here, meanwhile, a Texas contact took this video, these photos here are derived from a video, of hundreds, possibly thousands, of what appear to be U.S. Bradley armored fighting vehicles, which transport troops and are topped with a turret and gun, evidently heading toward the port city of Corpus Christi, Texas, on or around December 6, 2022. And the Politico article that you showed before this is dated um, right around January 5th or so. So this is a good one month before these articles were coming out, at least when these um, uh, Bradleys, what, what appear to be Bradleys, were cited. And Corpus Christi and Houston are two of the largest ports in the United States, uh, alongside Los Angeles and uh, other ports like that. And so, yeah, that's that's a sighting there. And uh, a, a thing to build on with is um, the, like you say, the U.S. and Germany are both sending vehicles. And um, there's been a reluctance to send the U.S. Army's uh, gold standard, the M1 Abrams tank, although that's being strongly considered. But that would be seen even by the Biden bunch as a major escalation in terms of how Russia would perceive if we actually sent Abrams tanks over there, which are a dreadfully deadly vehicle. They're, the accuracy and ability of an Abrams tank is incredible. At any rate, uh, the 50 Bradleys, um, this is the, this is the um, uh, political article. The 50 Bradleys are part of an overall aid package to be announced Friday worth $3.8 billion. I think that was this past Friday. I'm not sure. Uh, according to a person familiar with the matter who requested anonymity to speak ahead of the announcement, the package sets aside $2.25 billion for, for Ukraine, which will also include 155-millimeter artillery shells. Another $682 million in military financing will go to Eastern European countries to allow them to buy American weaponry and military equipment. So there's a lot of profiteering for U.S. defense contractors going on here. And they're also talking about the package for the first time will include radar-guided Sea Sparrow anti-air missiles. So there could be a little bit of air cover here, which could be launched from the sea or on land to intercept aircraft or intercept cruise missiles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they are getting into more variety in terms of the types of weapons. But it's interesting that this article says 50 Bradleys when this sighting uh, in Texas by one of my correspondents shows hundreds of them. And we cannot prove that this shipment, this particular shipment seen here, are going to Ukraine, are all of them are or part of them are, but th that is strongly suspected at this time. So it, it actually indirectly ties into the border issue. It's amazing how these issues connect. Okay. So Mark, thank you very much for that. Well, let's just uh, finish off this little segment. A very cynical report by Forbes here. It says, with ex-German MARDA fighting vehicles, Ukrainian infantry can keep up with the tanks, but the problem is they don't have the tanks because the uh, Russians have been killing off Ukrainian armor. And uh, the report here, once again, is emphasizing that these are light vehicles with 20 millimeter auto cannons. They're gonna be put on a battlefield without air cover and they are extremely vulnerable to uh, Russian attack. 
meanwhile, the mail here, British tanks could be sent to bolster Ukraine's war effort for the first time, James cleverly announces. But when we get into the detail of the article, there's nothing to do with uh, actual tanks being sent to Ukraine. But what is occurring is that essentially old equipment is being sent to Ukraine. Meanwhile, billions of dollars or pounds of orders for replacements are going to the defence industrial sector for deliveries at some time in the future. So as far as Ukraine is concerned, it's too little too late. And if we sum the situation up at the moment with the BBC in the lead for its wonderful war, uh, the estimates are now that 150,000 Ukrainian troops have died and, that, and probably 500,000 injured. But the death figure is being reported now quite widely by military experts who spent considerable time looking at the fighting. Ukraine as a nation state is destroyed, the power infrastructure is gone, industry and agriculture is shattered and it's now financially dependent on the US and the Western banking sector for their loans and the weapons to survive. Um, nearly 8 million Ukrainians have fled the country, but Zelensky is now forcibly summonsing ever younger soldiers. So this war, Mike, disgraceful war, but what is it? It's a proxy war for the US, UK and NATO. Well, it is, and that's finally been officially admitted in a sense. Here's uh, Alexei Reznikov, who is uh, the Ukrainian defense minister, and he was speaking on a Ukrainian television program a few days ago called One Plus One. Uh, and he said, today Ukraine is, is addressing that threat, the threat of, uh, of Russia and so on. We're carrying out NATO's mission today without shedding their blood. We shed our blood, so we expect them to provide weapons. That seems like quite an admission to me, Brian. But it was uh, countered by uh, uh, Rodion uh, Mirishnik, uh, who's the former LPR ambassador to Mo Moscow. And he's saying, are there any Ukrainians who have not yet realized that they are the resources for a contract between the Ukrainian puppet regime and NATO? Uh, they supply the weapons and Ukraine is paying for it with your blood. Yeah. And that uh, seems like a reasonable assessment? Well, I think it's extremely accurate. And the sooner the Ukrainians wake up to the fact they're being used, the better. Now, uh, the office of Gordon and Sarah Brown has issued a statement, uh, not just them, a number of others as well. We don't know the full list, uh, but this statement is calling for the creation of a special tribunal for the punishment of the crime of aggression against Ukraine. This is what they have to say. The acts of aggression can be traced back not only to the February invasion, but to the decision of Russia's military and political leadership to attack and occupy Crimea, the city of Sevastopol and the Donbass from 2014 onwards. I wasn't aware that uh, Russia was attacking the Donbass uh, from 2014 onwards. But anyway, OK, uh, if proven in court, these acts of aggression could constitute what the Nuremberg trials termed the supreme international crime, uh, for it is the crime of aggression from which most other international crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide often flow. Uh, the International Criminal Court has powers to investigate any act of genocide and so on. Uh, since Russia has not ratified the statute, there's a problem that the ICC can't act is what they're saying. Uh, therefore, uh, they need this tribunal. And so they say, to so to complement the actions now underway, underway before the ICC, we propose the creation of a special tribunal with a limited focus on the crime of aggression. The special tribunal for the crime of aggression against Ukraine can be set up at pace. During the Second World War, nations met in London in 1941 to draft a declaration at St. James Palace on Nazi German war crimes, which led at the end of the conflict 
to the creation of an international military tribunal and the Nuremberg trials. Now, uh, that's very interesting that they are calling for this. Uh, this is dated the 6th of January 2023. As I say, we don't know who all the signatories are. The Guardian listed, and it's, the Guardian was the only that I, uh, mainstream press that I saw covering this, uh, and they listed uh, five or six people, Keir Starmer, uh, former NATO Secretary General uh, George Robertson, uh, former uh, Foreign Secretary David Owen, Ian Duncan Smith, uh, Sherry Blair, Helena Kennedy. Helena Kennedy will come on to back onto in a second. But who else has been calling for this? Uh, well, uh, Zelensky himself has been calling for this. Uh, in October last year, uh, he was calling for it. We must create a special tribunal on the crime of aggression against Ukraine and addressed by President Volodymyr Zelensky uh, to the participants of the public debate War and Law in Paris. But it wasn't him that originated it. In fact, although uh, Gordon Brown has launched this this week, it was originally launched by Gordon Brown in March 2022. So here's the original statement calling for the creation of a special tribunal. Uh, and uh, that was March 2022. And Helena Kennedy was the only uh, name that, that I have seen of the names for this most recent one that signed the original one. Uh, but here's uh, Forbes coverage of it back in March uh, last year, just to show that it, it did get some coverage at the time. So this seems to be originating with uh, Gordon Brown, Brown and uh, being disseminated from there. Yeah, well, he's not a politician I admire. No, indeed. Okay, uh, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, you can pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share that material you find on the various platforms. Okay, thank you for that, Mike. Well, um, just a quick email, some feedback from one of our viewers, Jamie. Thank you very much, Jamie. Uh, he says, thanks again for your support and for the inspiration UK Column has given me to get in touch with my MP. Finding the column has been a great awakening of unrivaled news for me over the last year or two. And then he's saying if it's too busy to fit in, uh, that's an insight. Well, we did find time to fit it in. And thank you very much, Jamie, for your comment. Uh, I think that leads us on to David, who we're going to just give an update of the uh, Fenethi conference. Yes, uh, just a reminder for anyone who uh, was at Fornethy School, any of the ladies who went through Fornethy School in Angus, uh, the Fornethy Conference uh, is uh, on Sunday the 22nd of January. Um, it starts at 11, um, so the doors will be open from 10.30. If there's anyone who wasn't at Fornethy who, who has something that they feel they have to offer uh, for that conference, if they could get in touch with me, david at ukcolumn.org, uh, we can have a chat about that. But that conference is for the Fernetti ladies. And we see uh, in this next slide here the uh, a, a reminder of uh, what will happen on the day. Uh, Brian's coming up to join us and he will be making the uh, closing address. Be a lot of um, information coming from the Fernetti uh, women themselves. Um, uh, plus research that we've done, plus a, a speech by John Harley, advocate. Uh, and he has had a lot of experience of dealing with uh, corruption in the uh, Scottish state uh, in this particular area of uh, the safety of children. So he will have many interesting things to say. Um, the uh, next day, because we like to work Brian hard when we get him in Scotland, uh, we've got a UK column Scottish meetup in the Glow Centre Motherwell, uh, 6.30 for 7. 
Uh, we've got Brian, we've also got Dr. Bruce Scott, and we've also got Richard Lucas, plus myself. Uh, so all the UK column viewers north of the border, anyone else who can make it, please join us there. Uh, that should be a good evening. Um, and uh, a quick reminder here, uh, we've got uh, an, uh, an article from Professor Norman Fenton looking at Scottish, Scottish cardiac ambulance data, which shows a very worrying increase in incidents, and that plays to some of the issues that we were talking earlier about sportsmen um, and uh, the uh, onset of, of increased levels of, of cardiac problems. And um, we've also got, uh, just published on the website uh, with um, uh, Katie Jo Morphin, um, a, a recording she made in the summer. This is uh, uh, on the subject of Drag Queen story time and the agenda, and it's a discussion initially between Katie and a, a group of protesters, which is fascinating, and then that's uh, analysed by Katie, Brian and myself. Uh, and finally, a little reminder here, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a march, a freedom rally coming up in Glasgow, Saturday 21st of January uh, at 1pm on Glasgow Green. OK, thank you very much for that, David. Well, let's come back to Mark Anderson. And Mark, you're going to give us uh, an update on matters to do um, with border policies in the US. Yeah, yesterday, Sunday, January 8th, Joe Biden made his much um, anticipated but very tardy visit for the first time to the US southern border. And he was greeted by Governor Greg Abbott. And as it shows in this World Net Daily piece, Abbott is adamant to make it clear that this is pretty much all Biden's fault. And of course, Biden does share a large piece of responsibility of this. This headline, your failure, Texas governor shreds Biden on the tarmac in El Paso, Texas, over border policies. Now, moving on, uh, I got a hold of Abbott's letter that he handed to President Biden here. And it starts out, your visit to our southern border with Mexico today is 20 billion too late and two years too late. Moreover, your visit avoids the sites where mass illegal immigration occurs and sidesteps the thousands of angry Texas property owners whose lives have been destroyed by your border policies. But as I've noted in many reports, those Texas uh, border policy, or excuse me, those property owners along the border are just as mad, if not more angry at Abbott for not living up to his word uh, as they are with, uh, with Biden. And it goes on to say, even the city you, Mr. Biden, visited has been sanitized of the migrant camps, which had overrun downtown El Paso, which is in far western Texas near New Mexico, because your administration wants to shield you from the chaos that Texans experience on a daily basis. Now, moving on, uh, I've got the, the full letter. That's a screenshot here. Just to give uh, quickly Abbott a little bit of credit. That letter goes on to say, before we get to Mr. Ken Susanelli, former DHS, Abbott did put in his letter to Biden, he also said, you must stop sandbagging the implementation of the Remain in Mexico policy and Title 42 expulsions and fully enforce those measures as the federal courts have ordered you to do. Now there, Texas Governor Abbott is making a good point. Remain in Mexico, of course, is the policy instituted by Trump, but overturned by Biden, that required those seeking asylum to remain in Mexico while those uh, requests for asylum are being processed. If you take that out and allow them to get into the United States, then that increases the likelihood and the strong incentives to 
disperse them throughout the United States and just hope that they'll come back for their court hearing, and many don't. And uh, the letter to uh, Mr. Biden also, to, to uh, Abbott's credit, it also said, you must aggressively prosecute illegal entry between ports of entry and allow Immigrations and Customs Enforcement to re Enforcement to remove illegal immigrants in accordance with existing federal laws. You must immediately resume construction of the border wall in Texas using the billions of dollars Congress has already appropriated for that purpose. And this one's kind of a no-brainer. You, Mr. Biden, must designate the Mexican drug cartels as foreign terrorist organizations. I can't imagine why they're not uh, categorized that way already. But moving on, um, this is what provides the counter narrative. Now, while Mr. Uh, Abbott did make those uh, salient points yesterday to Mr. Biden in that hand-delivered letter, um, a, a couple of months ago or so, Ken Susanelli was on Fox News and he's uh, formerly with the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security. And he puts uh, in this headline, um, which recorded his uh, visit with Fox News, Abbott's invasion declaration, which happened in mid-November, Without deportation, all it is is catch and release on the state level, as Ken Susanelli uh, remarked. And in this article, um, going on here to the next, Governor Greg Abbott invoking the U.S. and Texas invasion clauses won't change anything if illegal immigrants aren't deported, as Ken Susanelli, a former Trump administration official, told Fox News back in mid-November. Going on, Abbott announced Tuesday, November 15, that he invoked the clauses to, quote, defend our state against an invasion, to combat the record-setting wave of illegal immigration occurring along the border. The Texas Republican, Abbott, sent a letter to Texas County judges indicating that he would deploy the National Guard and the Texas Department of Public Safety, which is the state police, and build a border wall, among other actions. But here's the key part that Susanelli shared on Fox News. If the goal is actually to reduce harm to Texas, then Abbott needs to start using the invasion authority to return people to Mexico, said Ken Susanelli, who served as Department of Homeland Security acting deputy secretary under Trump. Continuing on, quote, he or Abbott hasn't done anything but talk about the invasion authority. See, so this this uh, vindicates and uh, corroborates what I've been reporting. And he goes on to say, this is just catch and release with state officials, Susanelli continued. Everybody knows an invasion exists, but to actually repel it means putting people crossing the border back into Mexico. And there we see Susanelli's picture um, and another picture of him on a screenshot with all the uh, migrants or, or illegal immigrants shown on the screen. So this this just corroborates what I've been saying all along. And Susanelli has been making this clear since about mid-November when the invasion uh, clause was invoked by uh, Abbott at the, both the state and federal level, and uh, citing both the state and federal constitutions, that is. And moving on, uh, quoting Susanelli and others, the invasion clause Abbott referenced is Article 4, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution, which states the U.S. shall guarantee every state in this union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion. And this is this next quote enlarged is from Kinney County, Texas Attorney Brent Smith. 
as he told Fox News, if he, Abbott, acknowledges that there's an invasion occurring, the Constitution has plenty of provisions that not only the federal government has a duty, but the states, the governor of each state, has a duty to repel any invasion that occurs. As this Kinney County attorney, Brent Smith, said, the next step is fulfilling the duty as the governor to repel it, Smith continued. Susanelli added that Abbott should boat immigrants who cross into the U.S. illegally back to Mexico. In other words, use boats. So you've got a lot of people coming out and uh, who are on record, that is, uh, pointing out what we've been pointing out and what I've been reporting, that Abbott might criticize um, Biden, and rightly so and deservedly so, but he has equal responsibility here that more and more critics, very credible ones, um, are, are uh, pointing out that while he has equal responsibility, it's just a lot of talk and he's not actually carrying it out. Now, this is a quick picture of the Texas state capitol in Austin. It's the largest state capitol. Um, it's the largest capitol of any capitol building in the U.S., second only to the U.S. capitol. So of all the state capitals, it's the largest one. And I'll be going there tomorrow through Thursday to try and talk to legislators and others uh, working with some activists to try and get clearer legislative answers at the state level. Uh, are they going to call Abbott out on this? Is Abbott going to actually enforce this stuff? Or is this just a lot of rhetoric? So I expect to be finding that out for UK Column this week in Austin. And what we're seeing here, moving on, is a close-up of what I showed a few, uh, a few reports ago of what's going on in the Greater Eagle Pass area in Texas along the border. And these are these child graves, some of them infants, um, because people make such a perilous journey, uh, some of them, many of them under the uh, prodding of human traffickers and coyotes that generally work as grunts for the uh, drug cartels. And one of those pictures shows baby, baby John Doe. So a, a rather heart-wrenching, <clears throat> excuse me, a rather heart-wrenching thing to see in terms of the ultimate consequences of an open border and what that encourages and what the outcomes are. So there you go. Back to you guys. Uh, okay, Mark. Well, my, my comment is always the same. We see this happening in America. We see it happening in the UK and other Western countries. So this has to be based on a, a globalist policy. We'll dig into that for another time. We're going to thank you for that uh, segment. We're going to move on with David now. We will cover your other segment in extra time, Mark. Uh, right, David, uh, let's have a look at economy and Japan, first of all. Yes, we're looking for a Canadian to coal mine and we thought Japan looks like a good candidate. And the reason? Well, the debt level. Uh, this is a Japan debt clock. Well, it was when I photographed it earlier today. Uh, One quadrillion, four hundred and seventy trillion, thirty-seven billion, eighty-six million, three hundred thousand, three hundred thirteen yen at that particular point. It was quite fascinating to watch because it, it, it clicked on uh, about a million yen a second. So that's, that's a fairly high level of debt. Uh, it equates to about 250% uh, of GDP, which is about the level of debt uh, Japan had in 1944 when there was some difficulty going on. Um, just a quick uh, graph here to show who holds the debt. Firstly, uh, almost all of government debt, 88%, is in, is in um, government bonds, uh, Japanese government bonds. 
and so that market is vital and is essential. And who holds these bonds? Well, almost half is held by the Bank of Japan, which is a subsidiary of the government of Japan. So they're buying their own debt in order to uh, artificially lower interest rates, artificially increase the value of that debt. Um, it's also held by uh, Japanese pensions, life insurance companies, etc. So it's all in the Japanese banking sector, essentially. Um, now, something broke a few days ago, and we have the graph to show it breaking. So this is the interest rate on the Japan 10-year government bond. And we see it was being suppressed at 0.25% because that was government policy and they were buying lots and lots and lots of bonds to keep it at that level. And um, suddenly it doubled because they said, well, we're going to still keep it at zero, but it's not zero plus or minus 0.25%. It's going to be zero plus or minus 0.5%. So that was the new policy. And immediately um, the, the, the price level shot up to the new limit. Um, the Financial Times had several articles in this. One of them, I, I actually think it's, it's, it's rather wonderful because it has so much comedy in it and it's based on that wonderful uh, economic indicator, South Park. Um, but I actually kind of sympathise with the author, who's uh, Robin Rigglesworth. So he says it's the end of the sub-zero bond yield era and he says ominously for now. Um, and... He's pointing out, well, he says, pour one out. So he's suggesting alcohol is the only way to actually recognise this moment. Pour one out from the weirdest macroeconomic phenomenon of all time. So the the whole issue of having government bonds at negative interest rates, so you're guaranteed a loss if you buy them, hey, that's gone, right? So that's okay. And he finishes off his piece uh, with one of the one of the sort of topics, one of the phrases that make me make makes me love. Uh, looking at what's happening on the economic markets these days. He says, behold, a classic vomiting camel chart. And that's the sub-zero bonds um, disappearing. Uh, the market value of negative yielding bonds disappearing to zero. Now, you would think, gentlemen, that if the Bank of Japan had been spending money to artificially increase the value of uh, Japan government bonds, and they suddenly let the value fall, the interest rate go up, they would need to spend less money supporting the bond price, you would think. It didn't work out that way. In fact, it worked out the exact opposite. The Bank of Japan buys record amounts of bonds to defend the new target. Now, what this shows is imminent collapse. This shows that the market's not believing this, and um, they, sense, they, they smell blood, blood in the water. The Japan Times continues uh, that uh, Japan announced an unprecedented third day of unscheduled bond purchases. So this is all panic measures as it fights to back against speculation that it started to wind back its super accommodative monetary policy. The combination of additional uh, fixed rate and fixed uh, amount purchases announced Friday boosted this month's buying to 17 trillion, 128 billion in buying their own debt in a month a monthly record. So it's an all-time record. The central bank also said late Thursday to provide banks with Z with no interest two-year loans next week. So that says how well the, the Japanese banking sector is doing, because of course the banking sector is all capitalised on government bonds. The government bonds are now falling in value, so the banks will be coming up against liquidity and indeed solvency problems. Um, this, this was viewed as... Uh, 
a, a failure in many ways by many commentators. So Reuters commented uh, that the Bank of Japan ramps up bond buying to defend the yield cap, undermining jawboning. I had to look up jawboning, the use of public appeals to influence the actions, especially of business or labour leaders. So the, the, the narrative isn't working. Um, and it gets even stranger because we've got here FX Street reporting the Japan Prime Minister. Now, bear in mind, the Japanese government basically owns the Japanese central bank. It's a subsidiary company of the Japanese government. The Japan Prime Minister, Kishida, vows to uh, debate government and Bank of Japan roles with the new central bank head. They don't know what they're doing. This Japanese Prime Minister... Uh, Fumio Kishida said on Sunday that his government and central bank must discuss the relationship in guiding economic policy after he names a new Bank of Japan governor in April. In April. Um, he said under, bank of, under the new Bank of Japan governor we must discuss the relationship in guiding monetary policy. Policymakers must have a view on the outlook for the economy. There needs to be careful communication and dialogues with markets. It's going to wait to April. Now, what that is, is um, the equivalent of, the, there was, used to be an old comedy programme with Spike Milligan uh, called Q7, I think, and at the end of the sketches, all the actors would just stop and they'd, they'd, they'd shuffle towards the camera and say, and say, what are we going to do now? That's what that is. So the, the, the peg of the Japanese government bond price and, and interest rates has broken. They've tried to release the pressure a little bit. It hasn't worked. They don't know who's making policy. And they're going to wait to April to appoint a new Bank of Japan governor and then maybe sort out who's actually running the Japanese economy. That's a snapshot of how crazy things are in the world of economics and finance right now. And of course, it's not just Japan. David, you can't, you, can't, you can't move on or leave that segment without telling everybody where the Bank of Japan is getting the money to buy the bonds. Well, it's, 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 it's essentially making it out of, out of nothing. It's just printing it. There's, right. I mean, the, 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 there has been a massive creation printing of money by the Bank of Japan in the last five or six years. Uh, and it's 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 been even worse since COVID, uh, so they're they're basically printing money. I mean, this is this. If they were just printing banknotes, if the government was just printing banknotes and just issuing them, it would be more inflationary because it would go to the people. But this is ex essentially the same thing because they don't pay any interest in this. It's it's all one organisation. One part of it issues the, the the government debt, and the other part of it buys the government debt. So the money goes into the government. The government spends the money into the economy and supports things and 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 it doesn't pay any interest on the debt that the bank of japan buys because it all reverts back to the state so it's it's just money printing it's monetizing of the debt it's money printing it is it is hugely inflationary they've had a lot of trouble trying to get inflation in japan and that problem's now going away and inflation's now starting to to tick up um, but of course because it's been used primarily to support the financial sector not that much of it at the moment has gone into the general economy, so inflation's still relatively modest at 3-4%. But that could change very quickly. It's an enormously unstable system. Yeah. But my comment was that if the uh, policies, the real policies, are globalist policies, I think we've got to the position where many uh, 
politicians of nation states simply do not understand what's happening around them as a result of those policies. So they can't control their countries because of the globalist policies. But again, we'll have to leave that for another time. Um, okay, David, uh, let's move on to uh, the hate crime bill in Scotland. Well, it's, it's worse than the hate crime bill. The hate crime bill is awful and criminalises your conversation around the dinner table. It, it puts the state in your home. It's the most authoritarian thing you'd ever, you, you, you had ever read. Until the next one. Um, so this is uh, Jamie Gillis reporting um, on the government-appointed expert advisory group. Now, we've already covered this with some video from the hearings of this group a few weeks ago on the UK column. So this is the, the mainstream kind of catching up. Um, it, on ending conversion practices, it issued its final recommendations in October. Uh, the group, a coterie of LGBT activists and social progressives, concluded that um, new measures of criminal law, civil law and administrative law are needed in Scotland to punish conversion practices. They are defined very broadly as any act, treatment or effort with a specific intent to change, suppress, inhibit someone's sexual orientation, expression of sexual orientation, gender identity and or gender expression. So it's all covered. And um, this was largely generated from um, the work that the Christian Institute have been doing to push back against this and specifically the, the legal opinion they got uh, from Aidan O'Neill QC. This was reported in Scottish Legal News, uh, who said the Scottish government's on a collision course with the courts again uh, as it prepares legislation criminalising conversion therapy, according to Aidan O'Neill QC. Casey. Um, he said that the proposals are fundamentally liberal, beyond the powers of the parliament, um, and he, he said it has far-reaching uh, implications for... Um, criminalising parents and preachers. So he continues, the, the report advocates a new criminal offence that does not require any proof of intention of harm. So men's, men's rear's gone. It will be illegal to say the wrong thing, even if it is totally harmless. Aidan Neal refers to this strict liability offence where there's no need for any criminal intent in order to be found guilty. Mr O'Neill says the proposals would have the undoubted effect of criminalising mainstream pastoral work of churches, mosques and synagogues and temples, that prayers and sermons would be criminalised if the content did not conform with the new state requirements. Church workers, feminist activists, mums and dads, all sorts of innocent people could find themselves at the wrong end of a prosecution if this becomes law. Um, and uh, obviously there would be huge costs. The LGBT people are rightly protected from physical and verbal abuse by existing law, just like everyone else. But these proposals go much further. The Scottish Government is considering a law that would criminalise churches and gender-critical feminists alike simply because their conversations around sex and gender don't conform to a narrow state-appointed brand of LGBT politics. So this was picked up, that, that opinion and that work was picked up extensively. It was uh, reported in the Glasgow Herald here, um, saying it would criminalise parents. And, and this idea that, uh, that the state is going to criminalise your thought, it's going to, it's going to pathologise your thought, your, your, your views, which were entirely mainstream half a generation ago, your views are now, uh, are, are now a pathology. It's either, a, or, or it's a criminal activity. This keeps coming up with the Scottish state. It's extremely creeping or creepy and Orwellian. Now, even Wings Over Scotland, a Scottish nationalist um, and pro-independence blog site, uh, found this 
really beyond the pale. So they said, raise all of the flags, that is the warning flags. And he said, as a journalist reader, sometimes you want to pepper story up a bit. From time to time, it's perfectly legitimate to sensationalise a relatively minor aspect of something in order to draw attention to a worthwhile but dull subject. At other times, you find yourself in a strange position of having to talk a subject down as much as you can, because if you simply report the facts calmly and neutrally, it will sound so outrageous and ridiculous and deranged that everyone will think you've gone full on tinfoil heart, pencils up the nose, insane. And he pointed out that this was the latter case. Um, so extreme was the uh, conversion practices report. Uh, the report itself came from an expert advisory group, don't they all, um, which includes... Um, uh, uh, Rebecca Crowther, who featured quite heavily in UK column a few weeks ago, um, and also the very Reverend Dr Susan Brown of the Church of Scotland, who apparently gave her approval to all of this um, horrible idea. Um, a couple of quick clips from the reports, a long report. Uh, the group recommends that the definition of conversion practice must apply to equally to sexual orientation, expression of sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. It must be wide enough to encompass any treatment, practice, or effort that aims to change, suppress, and or eliminate a person's sexual orientation, expression of sexual orientation, gender identity, and or gender expression. So anything that seeks to change it. Well, not quite. We'll come to that in a minute. The inability to consent to conversion practices should form part of the definition. Uh, of conversion practice by not requiring an absence of consent or, or providing an exception for consent. So it doesn't matter if the person consents and, and wants a conversation, the state is still going to make that conversation illegal. The group rec recommends that the existence of a specific intent clause to cause harm, malice or ill will is not required for an act to be considered a conversion practice and should not be included as part of any criminal offence. So it doesn't matter if the person it wants you to do the, have the conversation and your motives are entirely pure and are, are only motivated to try and help the person and there's no ill will or malice at all, it's still illegal. Um, and, it, and it doesn't matter, nor should there be any requirement that the providers um, sought to cause harm to the, to the victim or potential victim. And it doesn't matter whether harm was caused or not. Um, the group recognises the need to facilitate, enable and encourage efforts which take place in a supportive and affirmative environment um, and are led by the recipient's autonomous decisions. So if, if the conversation is going to confirm someone's uh, newfound or, or, or odd or strange or different or uh, gay or lesbian or whatever sexual orientation, if you're confirming it, that's fine. If you're suggesting that that's not a good idea, the, the, the direction they're going in, and you're counselling them against it, that becomes illegal. It doesn't matter if it's beneficial for the person. It doesn't matter if it helps them. It doesn't matter if the person is entirely supportive of what you're doing. It's all illegal. It doesn't matter whether your motives are pure or otherwise. It doesn't matter if you're successful and you help the person, and you maybe you get them away from being suicidal and get, get them to a point where they're happy with their lives. That doesn't matter. It's still illegal. That's how authoritarian it is. Um, I don't have many more words to say about this one, gentlemen. It, it is incredible. You actually, the viewers won't know this, but you labelled this section cultural Marxism, which I think is what people need to start thinking about when they look at these ideas, where they come from and what they're designed to achieve, which is total control over a human being. 
I just find it remarkable that this is this has got so ingrained and is moving so quickly in in Scotland. Scotland I've always regarded as a very conservative place but it appears that under the SNP the doors have been open to cultural Marxism. Uh, right, David, let's, uh, we're out well, of time, so, so, so let's end. Uh, we'll continue this conversation in extra, no doubt, uh, but let's end with, uh, with a couple of uh, video clips very quickly. Yes, so there's been a lot of wonderful music uh, protesting against all of the things we've been discussing today. Um, the first one we've got here is from uh, Blind Joe, a uh, beautiful human being, as you'll find out shortly. Uh, this is an original composition called The Truth. Y'all, the government claims they care about us, but that's a pack of lies. You can watch them while they're talking, then you'll see it in their eyes. But if you completely trust them and you think our freedom's free, well, I hate to say it, buddy, but you're just as blind as me. And if you're born with a penis, you're a boy. And if you can have a baby, you're a girl. And if you don't like this song, cause you think what I'm saying's wrong, you're the dumbest human being in the world. And I saw that Mark was enjoying that. We'll get his comments in extra time. Um, we've got another one here from Scotland. This is the uh, William Wallace band um, and an extract from a track called Resistance. They want you fighting with each other. Divided you, don't focus on the real threat. They're coming into your house now. and credit and debts as we sleepwalk from manufactured crisis to crisis proxy wars Donald Trump double UNG's ISIS every woman every man stands up for your existence Transmission, you are the resistance. You are the resistance. And uh, finally, to close, another one from the States. Uh, this is uh, regarding education, and it is two plus two equals five. Send the mothers back to work Let the school system parent your children right from the birth Make them ill, feed them pills Confuse them about what's real Tell them facts don't really matter It's all about how you feel Science and math are racist History lets erase it Indoctrinate a whole generation You can't escape it It's bigger than American politics You're an accomplice White people racist and bigots And you're a colonist If you want freedom We'll encourage to do the opposite It's toxic masculinity If a man is too confident Excuse me, what's a woman? Well, I am not a biologist Common sense is really not coming When you're a communist Parents that care about their kids Let's call them terrorists It's cool to be a feminist And an environmentalist and if that makes you a white supremacist Don't even try defending it Cause what you say is irrelevant Put your hands up Everybody stand up The whole world going mad bruh Two plus two equal five You a racist If you don't think that adds up 
So whether you like um, heavy rock with a Scottish tone uh, or uh, American uh, hillbilly or rap, uh, there is some protest music out there for you. And they're focusing on exactly the right things. It's beholden on all of us to stand up. So good to see the music industry getting involved. Let's leave it there. Back in a couple of minutes for extra. Okay, back in a couple of minutes. And somebody uh, said, when are we going to cover Brazil? Well, Mark was lined up to do that very thing. If you're able to, as a subscriber, join us for extra time in a few minutes. We will see you then. Thank you, everybody, for joining UK Column News today. Bye-bye.